morning and welcome again to the bridge. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to, uh, to be gathered together. Uh, and for those of you who are online, I'm grateful that you are uh, with us as well. Um, I didn't say much last week about this, um, the sermon series, this, this title that we've chosen, Through the Fire, and I'm going to fix that right now. There's, uh, there's a mindset out there that I've, I've referred to before that says that God can really only do his work in me or in our church or in our, in our world or whatever when everything gets put into place, when, when everything is kind of in order, right? So, so God can kind of do his thing once this busy season of work is over, once the kids have grown up a little bit or once I'm finished my schooling or once we finish that house renovation or once I retire or once, you know, all my, my, my issues are dealt with and every hardship is removed and everything is exactly right in the world, then and only then can God work in my life. And then there are others who think that God's one purpose, his one, his one goal is to remove those hardships from your life. And that if you just have enough faith and if you just declare your victory over it, then those hardships will be removed. And I'm just gonna go ahead and call balderdash on all of that. I'd call it worse, but I'm in church. So we're gonna stick with balderdash. In Acts 5 to 12, you get this section of scripture uh, highlighting the early church. And, and the, the early church, I, I think we could agree, is, is kind of the church at its best. When we read about what characterized this church, we would say that this is what we want to have characterize our church, what we want to have characterize our lives as well. It was, as we talked about last week, this solid foundation that God was, was using to build his church that would have a global impact, a foundation that would have to sustain the weight of the church for thousands of years afterwards. So really solid foundation, the church as it should be, but not a church immune to difficulties or to trials at all. In fact, when you look at this section of Acts, you see the church passing through the fire, whether it was internal struggles and, and temptations to compromise or external threats like persecution. In one way or another, the early church passed through the fire. But what they understood, which some of us forget, is that the fire can strengthen, can purify the church. It's what we saw last week even with Ananias and Sapphira. You know, you've got these people dropping dead because they have lied to the Holy Spirit and, and, to, and to the church. And you would think if people hear this, they go, well, I'm not going to be part of that. I might lose my life if I show up on a Sunday. I'm not being part of that. And yet we read that many were still being added to their number because because passing through the fire, when your eyes are set on Jesus, when your foundation, as we talked about last week, is on him, he actually strengthens us. This is, this is how Peter, one of the foremost apostles, put it in his letter. He said, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. All these trials can purify, they can refine, they can prove the genuineness 
of your faith. See, I, I think I have something to learn here. Maybe you do too, because I usually shy away from the fire, but maybe that's not the right approach because maybe that is the way that God intends to make us who he wants us to be. Uh, let's learn from the early church together this morning. Let's pray, and then we're gonna get into Acts chapter five. Jesus, we wanna invite you to speak to us today. We're so thankful, Lord, for your word. We're so thankful for the testimony of your people and for the inspired recording of that in the scriptures. And we ask that today, Lord, as we spend time in the early church, that you would, um, that you would challenge us and that you would convict us and that you would comfort us, that you would shape us and transform us, Lord. And I pray you'd give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive your word and that your will would be done in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts 5, verses uh, 17 to the end, and we've got some world-famous actors to uh, portray it for you. So here we go priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. 
He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For it is their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let him go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. There you go. Now, if you got lost in all the cuteness of it, let me give you the Coles Notes version of the story. So uh, the Sanhedrin, they don't like that the faith in Jesus is spreading around. They arrest the apostles, an angel does a divine jailbreak in the middle of the night, sends them back into the temple courts. There's this little comedic thing where the Sanhedrin's like, where'd they go? Someone misplaced the apostles. They're, oh, they're preaching in the temple. They bring them in, do a little verbal altercation, ultimately decide to give them a little slap on the wrist, flogging on the back, slight, slight tap on the butt with a pillow, whatever version you're kind of looking at. And then, uh, and then just kind of instruct them not to talk about Jesus anymore. And the disciples go, no thanks. And they go off and they, and they continue to do it. That's, that's kind of the story. Now let's, let's break it down. Uh, and, and let's start by talking about the authorities. Let, let's talk about uh, their, their part in this. Here we're talking about the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the, uh, the ruling council, the, the Jewish kind of religious governing authority. Judea was a province of the Roman Empire, totally kind of under control of Rome, but Rome didn't care very much about the religious issues in Judaism. So they said to the Sanhedrin, this kind of mixed theological and political body of Jewish leaders, you, you guys decide all this stuff. And, uh, and, and, and we're gonna look at some of the unfortunate tendencies of human authorities here, but let's start charitably. Because very, very infrequently is a governing authority entirely bad or entirely good. Uh, usually it's a mix. So Romans 13 talks about how God has given governing authorities to, as, as a gift to us to establish order, to maintain justice. Uh, and so this is a gift. And yet governing authorities can also be used by the evil one to uh, enact injustice and to oppress people. We see that in, in Revelation 12. I preached on that in December where the, where the dragon has these horns, uh, these, these crowns, sorry, on his heads. And these represent uh, human authorities that he uses to accomplish his purposes. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but, but we see that here as well in Acts 5. It's not all bad. You get the wisdom of, God, of a guy like Gamaliel. Gamaliel was, uh, was a famous uh, Jewish teacher he was actually the apostle Paul's mentor before Paul met Jesus. So that's probably why we know what Gamaliel said in this, in this setting, because either Paul was there or Gamaliel told Paul later on. But he was, he was an esteemed member of, of the Sanhedrin and he got up and he said, hey bros, cool your jets or something along those lines. Because the Sanhedrin wanted to kill the apostles. They wanted to snuff this movement out. And Gamaliel said, look, 
If this, if this movement isn't from God, then it'll, it'll peter out. It'll take care of itself. We've seen that with other groups. But if this is from God, then you're not going to be able to stop it. Neither will the Romans. No one will. And especially as a group of people that was supposedly about honoring God and leading his people, you don't want to be found to be fighting against God. So that's Gamaliel's counsel. There's some wisdom there, isn't there? I mean, in, in a, even in a fallen world, Gamaliel was, was never a follower of Jesus, as far as we know. And yet he had this wisdom and, and, and kind of influenced the government in a way that provided some, some freedom for the gospel to be proclaimed. And, and when governing authorities do what they're called to do, this is, this is what happens. They, they, they foster the common good. They, they enable human flourishing. They promote freedom of religion, those kinds of things. But oftentimes, governing authorities don't do that very well. Because very often, they become more concerned with, with self-preservation than with doing the right thing. So they, they work harder to pander to, to votes, let's say, in, in a Democrat, democratic society like ours. They, they work harder to kind of gain votes and hold on to support than they do with, with actually doing the right thing. So they go, well, we need to get the hipster vote. Let's give a, a tax credit for camping or that kind of thing, right? It's no longer about governing well. It's more about making sure that you hold on to power because that's the name of the game. The name of the game is holding on to power. And that's the case with the Sanhedrin as well. What gets them really upset is, is they, say to the, they say to the disciples, you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, Jesus's blood. They're saying, look, you seem to be out to undermine our credibility and our authority in society. We don't like that. And the thing that, that the disciples say later on that really, really ticks them off, that really triggers them, is when they say that you killed Jesus by hanging him on a cross. Look, the disciples don't say this because, because they, they want to they wanna get back at the Sanhedrin, because they want to they wanna make them pay for helping kill Jesus. Because the death of Jesus, I mean, that, that's central to God's plan for salvation. It's essential for the forgiveness of sins. It was in accordance with God's plan. And it didn't really take in the first place, right? They killed him and it was like, well, you couldn't keep him dead for more than a few days. So the joke's on you. So it's not like they're trying to get them back. But they're not going to let the authorities off the hook here. They, they are not going to ignore the fact that these religious leaders who were heirs of the prophetic promises that all pointed to Jesus were nevertheless instrumental in his death. And the implication of that is that these authorities, these leaders need to repent. That they need to radically change in the way that they've been thinking and living. And there's, there's another there's another layer to this too, by the way. Uh, the majority of the Sanhedrin apparently were Sadducees. Sadducees were a sect within Judaism and they, uh, as opposed to the Pharisees, another sect, the Sadducees didn't believe that there was such a thing as resurrection. They, they didn't believe that there really was any hope after death. And so not only are the disciples spreading this word about the death of Jesus, but even the resurrection of Jesus is offensive to them. You know, it implies that not only do they need to change in their thinking about Jesus, they've got to change all kinds of deeply held beliefs. See, what you need to understand 
about human authorities is that because they are so concerned with self-preservation, they don't take very kindly to calls for repentance, for change, for transformation. They're okay with change as long as it's in a direction that is suitable to their purposes, to their favor. But if, if, if society is changing in a way that's not favorable to them, well, they can't tolerate that. And they can't tolerate it when, when they themselves are being called to radical repentance. And so what do they do? What do they do when faced with something like that? Well, they've got to snuff it out. They persecute, that's what they do. So the Sanhedrin pulls the, the apostles in, they interrogate them, they flog them, they imprison them, and later on, ultimately, they don't do it yet, but they're, they're gonna execute them. And this has always been the case, that authorities don't take well to this kind of thing, even in, even in so-called Christian societies. I've been reading uh, John Wesley's journal recently. John Wesley was, uh, was an 18th century uh, preacher, priest uh, in, in England, and he was uh, one of the primary figures in what's called the Great Awakening. So when he was about 30 years old, he had an experience of the love of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus became so real to him. He started going around England, just, just everywhere, uh, preaching the good news. I mean, his preaching schedule was crazy. I'm reading the journal. He's like, well, on this day, I decided to take it easy. So I only preached twice in this, in this day. He's preaching at 5 a.m., 9 p.m., just like this, is, this was his life, everywhere going and preaching the good news. He'd go into, uh, into marketplaces. He'd go into fields and, and just proclaim uh, the love of, of God and Christ and this calling to repentance. But it wasn't, at least for the first 20 years after this, even though he had thousands of people listening and responding, there was always, always, always opposition. There were, there were mobs who tried to, uh, to stone him, tried to knock him down. They'd send their strongest men in there to try to intimidate him. They'd try to bang down the doors of the homes that he was staying in. He had mayors who forbid him from preaching in their towns, pastors who forbid him from preaching in their churches because he was saying, you guys have cold hearts. You need to be revived. You gotta turn to him. They didn't take kindly to this. In one story, this is one of the craziest stories to me, um, there was a mob, so he's preaching in this marketplace, lots of people listening, but there's a mob and they bring a bull, like, you know, like an angry male cow. They bring this bull and they mean to send the bull through the crowd to try to disperse the crowd. They're so angry that people are listening to him. But the bull doesn't listen to them. John Wesley in his journal says that the beast was wiser than his drivers and continually ran either on one side of us or the other while we quietly sang praise to God and prayed for about an hour. So just imagine like a thousand people praying and, and worshiping and a bull just madly running around as its, as its owners try to beat it into the crowd. Eventually, they, they get the bull to the front by the table where, where John Wesley's preaching from. And by now, the bull is just bleeding all over from its beatings. And Wesley's trying to move its head because, you know, he's probably got like shiny white shoes or something and it's bleeding all over the place. He's trying to move the thing. Finally, they ram the bull into the table. John Wesley's like falling off the table. His, 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 uh, a bunch of people catch him. In the meantime, the mob gets at the table and they just, they're tearing the thing apart. Like they're just like this rabid, angry crowd. His friends carry him off like a hundred feet away and he finishes his sermon without disturbance in the quiet as everybody kind of just, you know, quietly shifts over while the mob destroys the table. So that kind of thing 
happened to John Wesley all the time in a so-called Christian country condoned by so-called Christian leaders, even as he was part of the National Anglican Church the whole time. And if that happened in the 18th century in England, then I can guarantee you it's going to happen in secular societies like Canada in the 21st century. You know, there was this bill just passed uh, last month unanimously in the House of Parliament, Bill C-4, which is the conversion therapy bill. And there are parts of that, that bill that address legitimate concerns that we as Christians should be concerned about as well. But it is also a very uh, kind of broad, wide-reaching bill that essentially means that any, any practice, treatment, or service that would counsel people to live in line with biblical standards of sexual morality, that's now a criminal act. For a, a Christian counselor to encourage someone uh, in the words of Paul, not to gratify the desires of the flesh, to not act on, on certain sexual impulses, that is, now, that is now considered a criminal act that is, uh, is, is worthy of jail time. That's in Canada here in the 21st century. See, the authorities very often do not take to calls for repentance or for change kindly in the first century, 18th century, or ours. Let's talk about what God does about this. We've talked about the authorities. Let's talk about what God does in the midst of this. And the first thing we'd have to say is that God allows this to happen. God allows the apostles in Acts 5 to be flogged and, and to be imprisoned and ultimately in Acts 7, sorry to spoil it for you ahead of time, but they're, he's going to allow Stephen to be stoned to death. God allows these things to happen. Like we talked about last week, God very, very infrequently does he, does he make us pay the ultimate consequences of our sins in the moment. That happened with Ananias and Sapphira. It doesn't happen very often. Usually God gives us the freedom to, to sin and, and the freedom and the, and the opportunity to repent of that, to turn from that. Same thing with the authorities. He gives the authorities the freedom to oppress and to persecute and ultimately to, uh, to repent if they are willing. But God gives the freedom for that. That's kind of in, in, his, in his character and that as well has been the case uh, ever since the beginning. But once in a while, God does protect Sometimes he, in, in a supernatural, miraculous way, he protects his people from, from persecution. So here you get a divine jailbreak. Any of you watch uh, the show Prison Break back in the day? Any, yeah, okay. At least one person's very excited about it. Uh, so you got two brothers, and uh, one brother is wrongly on death row, and then the other brother gets the, the, uh, the, the uh, blueprint of the prison where his brother is. He gets it tattooed on his whole body, and then he attempts a bank robbery so that he gets thrown into prison alongside of his brother, and then he uh, carries out this elaborate escape. And it's, it's very elaborate. It takes 22 episodes. It takes a whole season. And then, because the whole premise of the show is escaping from prison, and it did pretty well, and the producers wanted to keep the gravy train rolling, they, the brothers got thrown into more prisons and had to escape from them for another few seasons. God doesn't need a whole season. Doesn't need 22 episodes. One, one, one night, one moment, boom! Angels come in, open the door, apostles out, close the doors back. That's it, that's it, one sentence. And God does it, delivers them, rescues them from that. 
It reminds me of a story I read in uh, The Heavenly Man, this um, biography of Brother Yoon, who I, I've mentioned a few times. He's a underground, he was an underground Chinese house church leader. He was imprisoned in this high security facility in China that nobody had ever escaped from. And he, was, he had been beaten so savagely. He, was, he, he had been tortured for his faith in Jesus. And uh, one day, he very clearly gets this prompting from God. Now is the time to leave. You need to go right now. It's like, really? Okay. Uh, he <laughs> goes to his cell. I think, I, I think what it is, he goes to his cell door. It's unlocked. Bizarrely, he, he opens it, goes through it. He's passing by guards who are just staring right through him as though he's invisible, continues to like all these gates that are always locked, they're open, doors that, that should, be, should be locked are, are you know, like he's, he's able to open them and everything, just walks out right through the front gates onto the street. Nobody ever says a word to him, just, just, just walks out. And, and it's just like, I mean, that series of coincidences is just a little bit too much to chalk it up to chance. Here's, here's God divinely, supernaturally, uh, delivering him from this, this persecution. It's incredible. Now the question is, why doesn't God always do that? Because Brother Yoon was imprisoned three other times. He was, again, beaten and, and, and tortured so brutally, and yet it was only in this one instance that God kind of delivered him in this way. Again, the apostles are flogged. They're thrown into prison. God doesn't protect them from that. Stephen is going to get executed. A lot of them are going to die for their faith in Jesus. God doesn't rescue them from that. Why not? Why doesn't God always protect us in this way? I think it has something to do, or it's, it's along the lines of, of physical healing. Sometimes God supernaturally, miraculously heals people of their sicknesses, their diseases, and, and so on. And other times he doesn't. No matter how much prayer has been done, no matter how much faith people have, no matter how much they declare it, it doesn't happen. Why? Because it, it seems to me that, that God chooses to heal in some cases to remind us that in general, he, he's still around, he's on the throne, he, he, he's got power, and, and it also is a sign, it's a sign and a taste of what he is going to do one day in eternity for all of us, for all his people, that he is going to release us from sickness and from pain and all of those things. So what we experience in this world is a, is a sign, it's a glimpse of that, that eternal reality. I think it's the same thing here, that God sometimes delivers supernaturally and miraculously as a sign, as a glimpse of what he's going to do in eternity, that he is going to provide us with this security and with this freedom in his presence. And I think also a sign to the authorities that they don't know who they're messing with. They're messing with the big guy. And, uh, and whatever purposes they have are not gonna be carried on to completion. It's like Psalm 2 says, and, and I've quoted these words before, I feel like they're like thematic for the book of Acts. He says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. They have these purposes. God uses them to accomplish something different, turns graves into gardens or something like that. Right? We sang something about that. This is what he does. And so here you've got these authorities and they're like, like in Acts chapter five, and they're like, oh, we're gonna get those apostles. We're gonna bring them in. We're gonna teach them a lesson. Go get them, bring them in here. And it's like, oh, they're gone. Like they just look foolish. 
It's just embarrassing. Like God totally kind of exposes them in this moment. And I, th- I think that's what this is about. It's about saying to, to us and saying to the authorities, look, you, you've got what you want to accomplish, but it's not going to work if, if God wants to do something different. So he protects and he provides in some cases, but in all cases, what God does in situations like this is that he calls his people to make him known. So the angels, they, the angel breaks the apostles out of prison, right? And um, you notice the, the angel doesn't say, hey, you guys have had it pretty rough. You know, go take, go take a break. Why don't you go take a couple weeks vacation at Tel Aviv, sip some Mai Tais on the beach. You know, a couple weeks, we'll call you back and get you back into it, but you deserve a break. Doesn't say that. Go right down to the temple courts. The most public place possible where you are sure to get into even more trouble. Like poke the bear even more. Go into the temple courts and tell people about me. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about the life, the gift of life that comes in Christ. This this gift of life, the quality of life that is not dependent on the comforts and securities of this world. Go tell them about that. He commissions them to make him known. And this is always the case that even when we are in the midst of the fire that God calls us to make him known. Remember 1 Peter, right? Where where Peter says that all of these trials that have come, they are for the praise and glory and honor when Christ comes again. That's that's what they're here for. They're here to prove the genuineness, make, make known the genuineness of your faith. Brother Yoon, he says, we must submit ourselves to God and embrace whatever he allows to happen. Sometimes there are times of peace, other times struggle and persecution, but both are from the Lord to mold us into the vessels he wants us to be. See, God's able to do this with every circumstance in life, to mold us into these vessels who display his presence and display his glory. But, but Brother Yoon goes on to highlight the reality of persecution. He says, instead of weakening us, the persecution just made us stronger. The more pressure there was, the more fire and love there was to spread the gospel. Again, this is only true if your foundation is, in fact, Jesus. If he's the foundation of your life, then even in persecution, even in opposition, then then that's maybe the best situation to make Jesus known. Brother Yoon said we even had more fire, even more passion to to tell people about him in times of persecution. This is is what God does. Look, there's... There's an application here for everyone, whether or not you are personally experiencing state-led persecution at the moment. There's an application here for everyone, but let's just, let's stick with, well, we'll get to that, but let's stick with Acts 5 for a moment. And and I just want to say again, be prepared for this. Be ready for this. Expect this. Expect that the further the hearts of those in authority are from the Lord, the further they depart from God, the more the pressure is going to ramp up, the more the heat is going to rise. Expect this, anticipate this, be ready for it. Don't try to escape it, don't even try to fight it, but allow it to make Jesus known. Allow God to use those times. 
of opposition and persecution and the, the hostility of the, the authorities allow God to use that to make Jesus known. You've got to be ready for this. It's coming. If it isn't already here, it's coming. Take my word on it. And we've already been touching on this, but let's talk about how humans, how, how the church, how the disciples respond to this. We talked about the authorities. We talked about God. Let's, let's talk about the church. Uh, and the first thing pretty straight up is, is that they obey God, right? The angel says, go preach in the temple courts. Yes, yeah, it's going to get you into big time trouble, very public place. Go and do it. What do they do? They do it instantly. They go right away. It's daybreak. They are there. They're, they're preaching. They obey God. And by obeying God, they disobey the authorities, right? Like pretty clearly uh, obeying God means in this case, they have to disobey the command not to preach about Jesus. See, I, I get this sense that some Christians, maybe especially in the West, have this idea that submission to authorities means unconditional obedience. That if authorities say something, then we have to do it because I, I think in the West, we have had a comparatively uh, a, a, a history of comparatively just government with relatively little scandal. And understand, I'm using words like comparatively and relatively, okay? Like the bar is pretty low when it comes to government. But I think overall, uh, religious people in Canada haven't had that great of an issue of conscience in most cases. But I think that's changing. Like I've said, I think more and more, the government is going to, or, or God will call us to do and to say things that our government forbids us to do and to say. And so the question is, how are we going to respond to that? What are we going to do? Well, the apostles don't really hum and haw about this. They, they don't struggle with this. They just say straight up, we have to obey God rather than human beings. Like that, that's the choice. We're going to go with God every time. I recently, uh, I, was, I recently saw a little bit of a testimony video of a woman in Ontario. Um, last year, while all these uh, churches in, in Ontario as well as in BC were kind of shut down completely for in-person uh, worship services, there was a, a church in her, in her town or in, in her city that, that defied public health orders and, and stayed open during that time. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was something I think most churches wrestled with. We believe that God has called us to meet together, but there's a pandemic. What do we do about this? But they, they discern, no, God's still calling us to meet together. You can disagree with, with them if you want, but that's what they kind of discerned. So they're meeting together. This woman, she was, she was a drug addict. She was, uh, she was on the streets. Her life was going down real quick. She heard about this church. She walks into an in-person worship service at the time when that was illegal she prays with the pastor and the elders after the service. Ultimately, she gives her life to Christ. She is set free from her drug addiction. Uh, and, and she got baptized recently. And in her baptism testimony, she says that if this church had closed its doors like they were ordered to, that she would be dead. That none of these things would have happened in her life. Now, again, you could, you could disagree with that church's discernment, but you, you can't really disagree with the fruit of it, that here is this woman whose life was saved and experienced the love of Jesus because that church was willing to disobey the authorities and, and pay the consequences. And, and by the way, I, I think that's a big part of what it means to submit to the authorities even when we don't obey 
the authorities. It means that we are willing to pay the consequences of it. So the apostles, you know, here's the Sanhedrin. They're trying to arrest them, trying to bring them in front. And the apostles don't try to stir up a revolt against the Sanhedrin. They could have, perhaps, because apparently everybody was in favor of the apostles. They didn't stir up a revolt. They didn't use their apostolic superpowers to fight them off. I've been watching a lot of Iron Man recently, so that's shooting out those things. Um, they didn't do any of that. They, they were willing to be flogged. They were willing to be thrown into prison. They were willing to pay the consequences of obeying God rather than the authorities. You got to pay the consequences. Now, some of you have maybe heard of the soccer player Neymar, one of the most talented soccer players in the world. And Neymar from Brazil, and I, I, uh, some of our, some, one, of, one of my Brazilian friends here uh, was very happy that I was going to um, talk about Neymar, not in a positive light. He was, he was happy that, 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 anyways. So Neymar was once very outspoken about his, about his Christian faith. Uh, you could see it in that. And they're like, 100% Jesus, woo! So uh, recently, he signed a contract, though, with his soccer team, Paris Saint-Germain. And part of this contract, there's an ethics clause. And if, if Neymar follows the ethics clause, he gets 500,000 additional euros a month, 6 million euros a year. And part of this ethics clause is that he will not make religious statements that might be detrimental to the unity of his club. Uh, he apparently since then has really stopped talking about Jesus because he doesn't want to lose those 6 million euros a year. He's not willing to pay the consequences of that. And maybe some of us, you know, we'd go, well, I'm, I'm a human, 6 million euros, that seems like a lot, I can understand, but, but very clearly a very different thing. I mean, his life isn't being threatened. It's just like he's getting, he's getting paid already, Okay but he's not willing to pay those consequences of talking about Jesus. In Acts 5, they, the consequences, imprisonment, the consequences of his death, they're willing to pay that consequence. They obey God, disobey the authorities, pay the consequences, and then the craziest thing is that they rejoice. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They don't just glumly accept this like Eeyore. They, they rejoice. They celebrate that they are counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus. Going back to John Wesley's journal, like I said, first 20 years or so after he starts preaching, major opposition, major persecution. You know, constantly his life is, is in danger. Uh, but it started to change. And by the time he died, apparently he was like one of the most beloved men in, in England. And around the time where it started to change, I, I was reading this journal entry where he enters into a region of England that had once treated him very, very poorly. And, and here's what he says. He says, I was much surprised whenever I went at the civility of the people, gentlemen as well as others. There was no pointing, no calling of names as once, no, nor even laughter. What can this mean? Am I become a servant of men? Is the scandal of the cross ceased? I just heard that I laughed. Like, here's this guy, and he's like, people aren't making fun of me anymore. What's wrong? This is terrible. Bad things aren't happening to me. People are treating me kindly. You know, they're not pointing their finger at me anymore. I must be doing something wrong. I must just have become a people pleaser now. Because he expected it. He expected that if he preached the gospel that he would encounter this kind of pushback. Like it wasn't a surprise to him at all. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why the apostles rejoice because this doesn't take them by surprise, not one bit. They expect it. Jesus told them it would happen. I mean, I mean, look, Jesus said to them, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If, you, if you're persecuted because of your faith in Jesus, you're in line with, well, you're in line with the Old Testament prophets who always met with rejection. You're in line with Jesus. They're, they're, they're just, they are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And, and so they rejoice because this isn't surprising to them. They, they have expected this. If anything, it just means that they're on the right track. They also rejoice because of what we talked about just in the last section, which is that their heart's desire is that God would use them to make Jesus known to the world. The suffering of Jesus was not some incidental detail in his life. It was the means by which he took our sins on himself. It was the means by which our sins have been paid for and we've been set free. Suffering is at the heart of the gospel. Suffering disgrace, suffering dishonor, that's at the very center of who we are and how we have been brought into the kingdom of God. And so when the disciples suffer for the name of Jesus, it's like, a, it's like an object lesson for the world. It is, it is a display of the gospel in their lives. They, the, the apostles talk about that. They bear in their body the death of Jesus. They make what Jesus has done for us known through their own willingness to suffer. So they, they rejoice. They rejoice because Jesus is being made known through them in this. And, and third of all, they rejoice because through this suffering, through this persecution, they are getting to know Jesus better. You gotta, you gotta understand this about the early church. Their number one desire in life was not comfort or security or the esteem of people. It wasn't the kinds of things that we often live for, talking about those foundations for them. Their, their desire, what their hearts longed for was to know Jesus, to walk with him, to know, his, to know his love. And so persecution became one more way in which they got to know Jesus. They got to enter into what Jesus had gone through. They got to identify with him. So they rejoice because, because they're on the right track, because they're making Jesus known, because they are knowing him more. See, this is what I'm, I'm driving at. Here, I'm going to conclude here. This is what I'm trying to drive at this morning is that many of us, including myself, need a shift in our view in the world, our view of the trials and, and the fires that we pass through. You know, you, Peter talks about trials of all kinds. And so whatever it is for you this morning, whether it's relational difficulties or it's financial stresses or it's a sickness or an illness of, of some kind or it's, or it's the opposition that you face, whatever it is, this, this fire that you are going through, don't shy away from it. Instead, as long as your foundation is Jesus, as long as knowing him and making him known is the goal of your life, then those fires only serve to strengthen and to purify. Don't shy away from it. Allow God to work through it and accomplish his good 
purposes. Again, it requires your foundation being on him. It requires your eyes set on him. But if they are, the fires will not destroy you. They will strengthen you. They will purify you. And if you face rejection and ridicule because of Jesus, if you, if you, are, if you are somebody who actually does experience that, that persecution because of your faith in Christ, if you are finding yourself uh, being pressured in the world because of your testimony of Jesus, rejoice, rejoice. Getting into trouble for the name of Jesus, as long as it's because of our faithfulness and not because of our foolishness, is something that we should say, bring it on. Bring it on, let it, let it be. If this is a way that God makes himself known, if this is a way that I can know Jesus, if this is a way that the gospel enters into the world and the kingdom of God breaks into this world, then let it be. Rejoice and be glad because you are entering and, and following into the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we are, we're praising you, Lord, and I know even that, Lord, that's, that's um, we, we are praising you and we are thanking you today, Lord, that you went before us, you passed through the fire before us, and, and there has never been a fire like that. You bore uh, our sins on yourself. You, you suffered uh, disgrace and dishonor. The Son of God, you, you came into the world, uh, Lord, and, and you... You, you, were, you were stripped bare and, and you, were, you were flogged and you were brought to the cross. You were hung there, Lord. You were, you were mocked and ridiculed and, and spit on and the crown of thorns forced on your head. You, you shed your blood, Lord. You did all of that so that we could be forgiven, so that we would be set free. You have redeemed us, Jesus. You have redeemed us. And so we praise you and we thank you, Lord. And if in this world, if in this body, Lord, you call us to be ridiculed and to be rejected by some in the world, if you call us to suffer disgrace and dishonor for your name, Lord, then we pray that you would shape and form our hearts so much that like those apostles, we would actually rejoice, not because we enjoy suffering, but because we want to know you and make you known. Lord, because we are living not for the comforts and securities of this world, but we are living, Lord, for that, for that heavenly home, for that forever reward, Lord, for that time where we will be whole and free and secure in your presence. And so, Lord, with our eyes set on that, and with our foundation on you, Jesus, we'll praise you. We'll worship you in every circumstance, Lord, in every storm, in every fire that we pass through. We will praise you. We will worship you. We will keep our eyes set on you, Lord, and we will make you known to this world. Lord, may our suffering that is in line with your suffering be used to proclaim the sweet aroma of your saving grace to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.